Well, good morning. Caden, you got that? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 18. This morning we get to uh, begin studying Paul's uh, crazy relationship with the church of Corinth. And so, uh, anyway, uh, and as you're flipping there, we have uh, another baby that will be here very soon at the end of December. If I can get Hayden and Emily White to come up, they got a baby girl that'll be here in December. Uh, and so, uh, time is drawing nigh. So, if you're a guest with us, uh, we uh, we have many babies here, and uh, the first the first baby that a family has, we do a baby shower. After that, we provide them with a little baby basket. So, anyway, so this is a baby basket from the church. Uh, and so, if church, if we'll commit to praying for Hayden and Emily in the next couple uh, weeks uh, and months as baby gets here, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and pray for them now. So, y'all join with me. Father, we love you so much. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we know that you are the author and the giver of life. And God, we know that uh, this precious baby girl who is soon to be in this world, God, that you have uh, formed and you're continuing to form her even up to this moment. So God, we pray in the next couple of weeks, God, that you will continue to do that work and bring it to completion. Father, we just pray even now for the day that this baby girl comes to know you, uh, that you'd use Hayden and Emily uh, to lead them, uh, to lead her, uh, to know you as Savior. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for the gift and the opportunity to be parents. God, I pray that uh, for Hayden and Emily and for all of us that we steward those gifts well to honor you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Yeah, we can... <clears throat> as I said, this morning we start... Uh, we go to the beginning, uh, the genesis, if you will, of Paul's complicated relationship uh, with the church there in Corinth. And so, you remember last week, Paul was in Athens, and now, as we pick up in chapter 18, we, he comes to Corinth. And so, I heard, uh, uh, read one guy this week when we're trying to understand uh, these cities that we're talking about. Uh, so, last week, the last two weeks, we were in Athens, and then this week, and uh, we'll be in Corinth the next week, and then we'll eventually get to Ephesus, and we hear eventually where Paul wants to get to Rome. And so, one of the uh, ways that he, this, this guy I was reading, uh, kind of brought it to where we can understand, Athens was like Boston. It was like the intellectual capital, if you will, that uh, Corinth was kind of like New York City in this commercial uh, capital. Ephesus was like Los Angeles being the pop culture and the cult center, and Rome was like D.C., the political uh, empire, if you will, there. And so when we come to Corinth, now we're at a place in which uh, is is filled with idolatry like uh, what we saw in Athens, but a little bit more in the immorality. So we'll get to that in a moment. But let's begin to read in chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your, he your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles and watch what Paul does. Uh, so you think he hears this big moment. I'm done with you. I'm leaving this place, and this is what he says. And, there, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue, so he didn't go too far from the Jews. Uh, but anyway, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together in his entire uh, household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, uh, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, and, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for this word. We pray now that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. Uh, that which you have us for us this morning. God, we thank you again for your word. Speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said, amen. So when we get here, obviously we understand, as in the past couple weeks, he was in Athens. And uh, from Athens, we don't, we, there's a few converts. And so uh, we see uh, that when Paul got to Athens, he was by himself, right? So Luke was still in Philippi and Silas and Timothy were uh, uh, back in Macedonia uh, as well. And so he's here by himself. So you found him last week. He was lonely uh, or two weeks ago, but looking at Athens, he became unsettled in spirit. Well, now we get, he leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth. And so the way that I'm going to break down this text is in three points. First of all, Paul's arrival in Corinth. Secondly, uh, Paul's witness in Corinth. And thirdly, the Lord's encouragement in Corinth. Uh, I'm thankful for these passages uh, about the Apostle Paul because uh, oftentimes we hold, I know for me, uh, we oftentimes hold these guys in the Bible as like some un unattainable standard. Like these guys are like superheroes. They don't feel, they don't hurt, they don't doubt, they don't struggle. They're just all zealous all the time, always bold, always on fire, never have an off day. They wake up every morning in gospel mode, ready to preach the gospel, to love, to love the person who, who hates them. Like these guys are just superheroes. But what we've seen definitely in Athens and now in Corinth is we see a man who's human. We see a man, listen to me, ready, who needs encouragement from God. Anybody, anybody ever been there? Everybody go, man, I, I need that often. And so we see Paul, the superhero in Corinth. He's going to do some great things, but he has a, so I think the meat of it is the encouragement that the Lord, uh, Paul had, I think, a six visions of the Lord Jesus. And this is one of those six visions that the Lord Jesus himself encouraged Paul. And so as we walk through, we're going to break it down like that. First of all, take a note, number one, Paul's arrival in Corinth. So we understand he leaves Athens and he comes to Corinth. Uh, and so uh, I was trying to think the best way to explain Corinth. Uh, and so I kind of walked through a bunch of different things. But what I want to do first, I want to look at Paul's condition and his decision upon before he arrives in Corinth and when he gets there. And we understand that. We understand his condition and how his heart was by reading 1 Corinthians that he would eventually write to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, this is what the scripture reads. And when I came to you, brothers, so here he's speaking of what we're reading in Acts chapter 18 here, and we're reading it. He's writing about it in 1 Corinthians here. It says, when I came to you, brothers, uh, I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. 
Here it is, ready? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3 kind of shows his condition of him entering Corinth. It says, and I was with you, here we go, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. It's not the Paul that we often think about of a superhero when he comes into Corinth. We think he came in guns a-blazing. But when he writes them, he says, hey, when I came, first of all, you need to know that I came and I decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. But when I came, I came in weakness and fear and much trembling. Verse 4 says, and my speech and my message were not implausible with words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so Paul's condition when he came to Corinth wasn't, like I said, he was coming in with a six-shooter. He came in and he told the Corinthians, I came in, I was weak, I was fearful, and I was trembling. So I began to ask the question, why, did, why was Paul in that condition? When Paul comes into Corinth, why, why did he come in in weakness and in fear and much trembling? And obviously, I think we can look at his journey so far in the second missionary journey. It would leave a man kind of discouraged, right? It, it would leave a man kind of like, Man, what's going on here? I thought like, <laughs> I thought this, like, I get somewhere and God starts working and all of a sudden I get ran out. He's now by himself. He's probably frustrated. Uh, he's probably, like I said, uh, frustrated. There's a lack of traction. The trip hasn't been as going as necessarily as good as he thought it would. And so when he comes into Corinth, there's obviously he's carrying the weight of him. His, his brothers that are on this journey with him, they're some 50 miles away from him now. He's by himself, and, and, or he's actually more than that. He's, he's 50 miles away from Athens now in Corinth, and so over 100 miles to his closest buddies who are supposed to be his compadres, and he finds himself all alone, and he comes, and obviously there's weakness, fear, and trembling, but I also think when he got into Corinth, it wasn't just what he had experienced, but what he was looking at. The, the, the mountain that he was going to have to cross in the city called Corinth. The darkness and the depravity and the immorality that he saw when he looked at the city of Corinth, and he, he, he was fearful and even trembling, and he was in weakness when he saw the condition of the city, of its immorality, its idolatry, and its pride. Corinth was the leading commercial city in the city of Greece to where Athens was the religious capital and intellectual capital, if you will. Corinth was the commercial capital. It was ultimately, I don't, I'm not going to pull up a map. I'll let Luke, I'm going to dedicate or designate Luke as the all-time map guy now. Uh, he's, he's very good at it. But anyway, it, ultimately, Corinth made like a land bridge between, between Greece and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And so all areas of trade had to come through Corinth. Uh, Luke's illustration was kind of like, it was like New Orleans. It only exists because it's set between two bodies of water and it needed land there and it was just there for trade. And so ultimately, Corinth was the commercial capital of the city of Greece. There was two ports and any, it was so crazy that because it was a land bridge, what they would actually do instead of, uh, of sailing around uh, to get to, to the other side, if you will, uh, there was a danger. They would literally, at one port, take the ship out of the ocean, put it on wheels, if you will, and just drive it across Corinth and go into the other bay. It was that convenient. It was much easier to go to Corinth that way. And so needless to say, Corinth was busy. It was wealthy. It was self-sufficient, if you will. It had its own thing going on. It was full of sailors that came from everywhere. Like I said, it connected Greece to the Pel Pel Peloponnesian Peninsula. It commanded trade from all directions. It was also the seat of the proconsul of Rome. So there was a lot of Roman influence there, obviously. 
in Paul's time, there was not a building there that was probably around 100 years old would have been the oldest building because in 146 B.C., it was destroyed by the Romans. In the 44 B.C., Julius Caesar began to build it. So we see that it was full of commerce and, and money everywhere, but it was also full of idolatry. There there was uh, uh, a temple there called the Acropolis, which was the uh, place where they worshipped uh, the goddess of love, Aphrodite. And the, the, the temple there had a thousand what they call priestesses. And what they would do is they would ultimately, there were a thousand prostitutes that would go down into Corinth. And that's what they did. It was everywhere. It was the home of the Isthmian Games, which was second to the Olympics. And every two years, athletes would come in to Corinth to be a, participate in these games. The wicked living, the immoral living in Corinth was so well known that to live immorally in that day, you had been called a Corinthian, even if you're from Corinth or not. Any time that a Corinthian was in a play, he or she was drunk. The actor would act drunk because that's how you distinguish, oh, they're from Corinth. It's a wicked place, and so you see when Paul gets there, not only is he tired and helpless and weak, but he's also seeing the job and the task ahead of him. This place is full of immorality and idolatry and pride. Corinth was openly immoral. What I mean is that the normal way to live in Corinth was to live immorally. If you didn't live immorally, then you were the outcast. You were the strange one. And not even that more than that, it wasn't just that, but even in the relations, their, their sexual relations, it's whenever we actually see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I would, I would love to say that after Paul's visit here, Corinth just got their act together and everything was perfect. But even when he's writing his letters back to Corinth, after the church was established, he was still uh, dealing with issues that they brought in from their culture. Corinth was proud. They were wealthy and self-exalting. And this week, I, as I studied and prepared, I came to learn that, which I knew, but it kind of came to my mind that Paul came to Corinth two, three times, and in a second or third time in Corinth, he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. Right, and so when he's in Corinth. Uh, we, are, we all understand because of the people he meets that there was already a church established in Rome before Paul got there because he wrote a letter to them, right? And he wrote it from Corinth. And so in Romans chapter 1, it's going to come up on the screen. It's going to be familiar, but it's a long passage. But I have to believe when Paul wrote this letter to, to the Romans and he explains the depravity of mankind, he has in his view the city of Corinth. You with me? And so as he's writing this letter to the Romans, his eyes are actually taking in the city in which he's at, and that is the city of Corinth. So now, in that mindset, let's read Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. So I'm on, it's a lengthy passage, but I think, I think it, the word of God will paint the context of Corinth way better than I can. So you ready? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for they... For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark, and claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal for image, immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, and here we go. I think this paints Corinth for us. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased mind to do what uh, ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Here it is, uh, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. And this is a random one in there. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they knew God, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, thus they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I have to believe that whenever Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, he is viewing the city in which he's in, and that is the city of Corinth. So I think Romans chapter 1, which we always talk about, actually I think he's writing about what he's seeing in Corinth. So you could imagine, here's a man by himself called by God to go spread the gospel, and he has this mountain of evil standing in front of him. Why? He would be weak and fearful and trembling. Corinth, as I said, was full of idolatry, immorality, and pride. But go back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. But when I came... I decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Maybe y'all didn't catch that. He knew what he was walking into, and he said, well, when I came, I may have came this manner, but when I came, I came with one message, and that's Christ and him crucified. The only answer, the only solution that we have as believers to idolatry or immorality or pride is Christ and him crucified. That no matter what the situation, no matter how dark the circumstance or the how, how high the mountain we must climb, if it's Corinth, may we be like Paul and say, I decide to know nothing, preach nothing, say nothing, but Christ and him crucified. Because, yeah, we look at Corinth, and obviously we read Romans 1, and we can see the world in which we live in. The things that are good, we say are bad. The things that are bad, we say are good. Or things that are evil, we say that's the world in which we live in. And may the church not just go, oh, well. May the church just not cry, come, Lord Jesus, come. May the church say, we have decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Because that is the only message that can turn a pagan 
culture to one who loves the God who created them. So Paul's condition was that he was, he was fearful, he was trembling, but his decision was, I'm going to preach Christ in the empty grave. The same message that got him ran out of the last couple of places. He's going to keep preaching that because he understood, yeah, I can go in there and talk to them, try to reason with them about immorality, but unless I preach Christ and they trust Christ, there is no hope. So Paul gets to Corinth. And God, in his goodness and his grace, I have to believe that he knew that Paul was lonely and discouraged. And he gets there and he meets new friends that become lifelong partners in the gospel with him. We see that in verse 2. He says, he found a Jew named Aquila. And a native of Pontius recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Ultimately, uh, the leader there, Claudius, he... He excommunicated, if you will, all the Jews because uh, the way they wrote it, because of this Christus that was causing much confusion. And so uh, we don't know if this was Jews and synagogues that were causing confusion or what. Well, ultimately, the message of the cross was causing some disturbance. He said, away with you, Jews. Get out of here. So I, I think, I believe Priscilla and Aquila are already believers before Paul ever gets here. Uh, and matter of fact, they become lifelong partners in the gospel with them because we read uh, in Romans chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, it says, Greet Prisca, that's the other way for Priscilla and Aquila. And it says, For my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, and here's what he says about them. He says, Who risked their necks for my life. So these weren't just friends that they met in a moment in Corinth, but these are ones that ultimately would sacrifice and risk their life for Paul and what God had called him to do. We read in 1 Corinthians 16 that they had a house church, that there's a church that met in their home. So these weren't just random people. These are people that they met here in Corinth that became lifelong friends. And so it says that he found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontius, recently came from Italy, and we say why he came from Italy, and he went to see them because he was of the same trade, and he stayed with them and worked for their own, were tent makers by trade. Here's, I, I loved seeing God's sovereignty. I don't think things are random, but there was a practice in the synagogues that you would be assimilated by people of like trade. And so when you came into the synagogue, that you would sit with people. So if you were a tent maker, guess what? You would sit with other tent makers. And so I just think it's awesome that here Paul is coming to Corinth. He goes to the synagogue and he meets these people named Priscilla and Aquila who are already believers. They're Jewish or one of them a Jewish believer. Uh, and they immediately hit it off because they have the same trade. God's even in the small details, like the fine print. Like, they're like here it is. And so they, begin, they meet and they begin to work together. Uh, what we understand about Paul is that when he went into new places, oftentimes, most of the time, he, and we haven't read about it up until this point, but when he would go into places, he would work. He was a tent maker. Uh, coming from Tarsus, there was, that was one of the main places of making tents, but all, the word here is tent maker is actually just leather worker, so there's a chance that he was beyond just a tent maker, that he was actually a craftsman with leather. But either way, he, he begins to hang out with them and stay at their house and work six days a week so that on the Sabbath he can go in and do what he's been doing, and that's reason with the Jews and the Greeks. And so for six days a week, listen to me, and that's, a, that's, a, that's an encouragement. Obviously, I know that my seven days a week is I work to do this. Right? But here's an encouragement for you, is that Paul, even superhero Paul, had the mundane 
daily job where he goes in and makes ends meet, but he still was committed to what God had called him to do, and that was to preach the gospel. So he went in six days a week. He would work with them. He would stay with them, and he would reason. That's the word that we got there that... Um, but we looked at the past few weeks where he sits down and almost a Q&A where he's talking. And I think primarily because we read it is that he's trying to convince them that the Christ that they believed in was the person, Jesus, that they denied. So the Christ that they were waiting for of the Old Testament, Jesus is that Christ. And so that's the way he reasoned. And so I just, this is a side note. This has, I guess it has a, something to do with the text, but not, but like, Imagine Paul going in that synagogue thinking he's all by himself, but coming out with lifelong friends. And so I just wrote a side note, like, maybe you should get to know the people that sit beside you because they may be more beneficial for you than you could ever imagine. And oftentimes we come into our church and we sit down by the same people every week, which is not a bad thing. But the reality is there may be people in our, even in our congregation who you've never spoke to, but that could be a Priscilla and Aquila for you. And so anyway, so that's just a side note. That's not to meet the text. But anyway, so Paul, secondly, we see that he is witness in Corinth. And so we see that. I got a little ahead of myself. But verse 4 says, he, he reasoned with them in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade. There's that. So there's a reasoning, but his, 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 his reasoning or clarifying or Q&A is so that he could persuade. Uh, so, because oftentimes what we see in the, definitely in this text is that sometimes or majority of the time, whenever Paul preached to Gentiles about peace and hope, they would, yeah, that's awesome. But Jews, they had to be reasoned with, they had to be persuaded that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. The, Jesus is the one that their whole, ultimately their whole religion has been pointing to. Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism, right? And so there's a sense that like, this is him, that he's trying to persuade him them. So he reasoned with them. And then finally, not only did he get Priscilla and Aquila as friends, but look at verse five. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Silas and Timothy show back up here in Corinth. And so the Lord is meeting, I think, Paul where he was, even in his distress and fears and, and, and doubts there. He, he sends Silas and Timothy. Second Corinthians teaches us that when they came, they brought a gift from the church of Macedonia. We see that. So that would be Philippi or Thessalonica, that they, the church sent Silas and Timothy to him, but they brought him a gift, monetary gift, money. And remember, prior to this, he'd been tent making every day so that he could preach one day a week. And First Corinthians 11, 9 says, But when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone from the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So in the Corinthians, I never asked money from you, but the church of Macedonia sent my brothers and they, they provided for my needs, which is what, when it says Paul was occupied with the word, what that literally means is that Paul then could spend all of his time preaching the word. That when the church of Macedonia sent the gift with Timothy and Silas, that Paul was freed up from tent making in Corinth, that he could preach every day. He was occupied with the word. And that's what he began to do every day. He, he began to, he could stop making tents in Corinth and begin to preach the gospel daily. So his buddies get there. The church of Macedonia send him a gift. He's continuing to, 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 to preach to the Jews um, that Christ was Jesus. And the verse 6 tells us, 
that he was opposed by the Jews. So when they opposed and they reviled him, this word opposer is to resist. Ultimately, uh, the word gives indication that they were forming coups or making an arrangement. They were, uh, the actual word is to arrange in a battle array. As in, it wasn't just like the singular like disagreement. They were forming groups to oppose and resist Paul. And reviled him. And check out what he does. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. We haven't seen Paul react like that. Paul got very Old Testament at this moment. Now, one of the signs that the Jews would do as a, of rejecting someone, they would shake the dust off. Remember when Jesus sends out the disciples in the gospel, he said, go to towns, and if they don't receive you, then shake the dust off of your sandal." It's the picture of him ultimately. That's why I think it's ironic that he's saying to you, I'm rejecting you, Jew. But when he leaves, he just goes across the street so he can still look at the synagogue. Right? And then he, when he goes to the next town, guess where he's going? He's going to go. And, but I think here what we're seeing is, is this, it, actually this, this, just all of this, this very Old Testament feel with, with him, almost like an Old Testament prophet, and then God's, God meeting him in a vision like he would Old Testament prophet. But anyway, uh, Sorry, that just came across my mind, and I had to chase it down for a second. Uh, but he says, your blood be on your own heads. And this is, I think, a great picture of actually an Old Testament prophet named, uh, in, in Ezekiel chapter 33. Some of us are probably familiar with uh, the watchtower in Ezekiel. Uh, if you're not familiar, I'm going to read Ezekiel 33, 2-5. It says, the son of man... Speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon the land, the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But check this. But if he had taken the warning, he would have saved his life. This is ultimately what I think Paul is saying. I have blown the whistle. I have blown the trumpet. And you have chose not to listen to it or respond to it. Therefore, I'm not guilty of where you end up in eternity. That, like, hey, think about that for a moment. He's coming and he's reasoning and reasoning. And finally says, your blood's on your own head now. And in this passage, I'm going to go ahead and kind of give, we see two inscrutable truths in this passage. You maybe saw it when I was reading it. Well, it's something that constantly happens. Both first one that we see here, and this is man or woman, but man and woman will be held responsible for what he or she does with Jesus and his gospel, a.k.a. man's responsibility. That every person on the face of the planet, especially, it's don't, like, don't let your mind automatically go to the, the mountain in India. We'll get there eventually. But every person sitting under the sound of my voice right now you will be held responsible for how you respond to Jesus and his gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. I've preached the gospel. Now you're responsible for what happens. 
as in you will, you will give an account to how you've done or received this message. Man, that's, that should stop us for a moment and begin to ask the question. Man, I've sat under many people blowing the trumpet of the gospel, if you will. But I have, I responded to it. I've sat under church. I know all the right things to say and do. But I've made Jesus the Lord and leader of my life. Remember in Acts 17 that Luke was on, taught us last week, look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. So check that for a moment. So before Christ and his appointed time, that God was, he overlooked man's rebellion and idolatry, if you will. Not that he didn't take it to account, because I want to show you something. All, everything he overlooked, he poured on his son at the cross. Like, let's not think about a God who didn't take sin serious back then. He did. But he built up a wrath that ultimately his son drank on the cross. But in times past, he overlooked ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So there is a, 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 a fixed time in which God will judge the world. And the one who's going to be judged, or the one who's going to do the judging, is the one that he raised from the dead. Who is that? Christ Jesus. And so upon this text, what I'm, what I'm beckoning, what I'm urging is, man, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I want to be the guy in the watchtower this morning saying, listen to me. One day you will give an account to what you've done with Christ. Will you please trust in him as your Savior? Eternity is too long and too real to play games with it. I don't want to be the preacher that says the blood is on your head, but what I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, is trust in Christ because one day all people will stand before you and be held accountable for what we've done with him and his gospel. So Paul was opposed, and he turned to the Gentiles. said he went across the street, but when he went there, he saw his first converts in Corinth. We meet a guy named Titius Justice. He says he's a worshiper of God. Well, that means he attached himself to the synagogue and to God. We've seen it already with Lydia. It was, a, was someone who wasn't a Jew, but at some point got fed up with all this idolatry and all these unknown gods and foreign gods and all that and began to attach themselves to the God of the Jews and to the synagogue. He was, he was, he was open to the things of God if he would, just had not been saved yet. And then it says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Check this. And many of the Corinthians, check out the order here, they heard. What did they hear? Christ and him crucified. 
Because that's what he said he decided to know when he got there. In the, in the synagogue, what was he preaching? He was preaching Christ, uh, Jesus as the Christ. And here he's preaching the, the death and resurrection of Christ. That says many of them heard it. And then they believed. They heard it. They believed it. And then they were baptized. So we see Paul's witness in Corinth. And you would think... You would think at this moment that Paul, maybe his spirits were lifted a little bit. Right? He comes into Corinth, just like, this is going to be tough. And then he meets Priscilla and Aquila. Silas and Timothy get there, and they give him a gift. You think he's, you think he's there. at that point, he don't need any encouragement. He's got all the encouragement he's ever had. But the third thing we see in this text is that the, the, the Lord's encouragement to Paul in Corinth. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul in a vision, here's a command, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Do you know what that verse suggests to us? That even though people had just got saved, that Paul was still fearful. Why would God command him not to be afraid if he wasn't dealing with fear? And the second thing is that God commanded him not to be silent. So I think that Paul was probably even wrestling in his own heart and mind. Maybe I should be quiet for a little bit so, so things just kind of just settle. The dust settles a little bit. But in the midst of that fear and discouragement or whatever's going on, and maybe even I'm not going to keep talking. I'm just going to let things settle down. The Lord in a vision, Christ speaks to him and says, hey, do not be afraid and do not be silent. And I can imagine, like, yeah, but, like, God, like, I know you told me that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a tough time and I'm going to be persecuted and I'm going to be uh, that kind of a deal, but, like, I must, I'll get through much suffering to enter the kingdom. But the Lord promised, or the Lord attached three promises to that command that I think the reason Paul was able to stay there for, a year and a half is because of these promises that were attached to that command. First of all, he says, do not be afraid, do not be silent. Again, this helps us see that, and remember that Paul was a human. Here are the promises. Number one, we see it in verse 10. The first one is that for I am with you. And Paul's discouragement, and maybe even his fear to keep moving forward, even in his thinking, maybe I should just hush for a little bit. God says, no, 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 don't be afraid. And do not, do not be silent because I will be with you. God promised him his presence. Very equivalent to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. I am with you even to the ends of the age. In 2 Timothy, Paul says it like this. 2 Timothy 4, 16 to 18 says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, and all deserted me. And may I not be charged against them. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear. Paul said, he promised me in Corinth that he's going to be with me, and I can give testimony that even though everybody else deserted, he stood with me. So in the, in the navigating fear, navigating the unknown, navigating even wanting to quit, 
God says, no, don't quit. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. You can do nothing to make me leave you. Not only that, but he promised him that this, which is a big deal for Paul, and no one will attack you to harm you. He wasn't attacked physically whenever he was in Corinth. Somebody else was. We'll see next week, but he wasn't. He promised him his protection. Not only did God say, keep going, don't lose heart, keep preaching. I'm with you, and I'm protecting you. I've got you. So Justin, well, what about like when he was shipwrecked or when he was stoned? God said, I'm protecting you here. And here's the good news is that sometimes his protection doesn't look like we think it should. Like, now if he was really protecting me, then I wouldn't get sick. If he was really protecting me, then this really wouldn't happen to me. If he's really protecting me, then we, we have a different view of protection. I think oftentimes God in his sovereignty and his omniscience, he protects us even by taking things away from us from something that could be even worse. We may not have eyes to see it, but I, I believe the Bible teaches me that he's working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose for his glory. Isaiah, we read that no weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against your judgment. Here it is. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. The heritage of the saints is that no weapon formed against shall prosper. And then here's the Second part of that paradoxical truth, if you will, man's responsibility. This is the third promise. He says this, for I have many in this city who are my people. Uh-oh. Here we go. That there are people in this city who are mine. They just don't know it yet. So on one side, we see where man's completely responsible for his decision. But here we see that God appoints people to salvation even before they hear the gospel. That God in his sovereignty has elected people to salvation is the word that we don't like to say. But we see it in the text here is that there are people in Corinth who God says, those are my people. Which, let me step to the side for a moment. Many people say, well, if God's sovereign, then why should we, why should we go preach? If he chooses everything, what's the purpose of preaching? No, listen to me. The fact that there was elect in the city necessitated the fact for Paul to go preach the gospel. Because nobody comes to faith without the preaching of the gospel. Matter of fact, Paul says in Titus, I think, that his job is, is to preach for the sake of the elect. So that those who God has, has appointed to salvation, they can hear and they can receive and they can believe. Say, Justin, what are you saying, bro? God reminds him of his purpose. I said, the text speaks of two inscrutable truths that it does not, I wished it would, but the Bible doesn't harmonize them. It doesn't say where God's sovereignty ends and man's responsibility begins. It just, it presents both. And I heard this, Actually, say, Justin, you say that God elects and appoints men to salvation? Yes. You said man will be held responsible for his actions and decisions? Yes. Which one is it? Yes. The answer is both. 
And this is an analogy I heard this week, is that any time that God makes himself known on our level, we must leave room for paradox. Because our little pea brains, we can't fathom it. We can't understand it. But when the, the all-sovereign God, the self-sustaining, self-existing creator of the universe, the very God who the wind doesn't blow without his permission, in a moment he can, he, can, he, he can hear every single one of our hearts and minds all at the same time. Anytime that God condescends and comes to our level, we will not grasp it all. So Justin, give me an example. All right, well, who wrote the book of Acts? Some say Luke. But I thought the Holy Spirit inspired all of it. It's a paradox. It's a sense in which, yes, it is God breathed, but those words were in the side of whose head? Luke's. Think about the incarnation. How can, how can Jesus be 100% man, 100% God? Nobody can be 200% of anything, but he is. Think about, I wrote a couple other examples here. Who lives the Christian life? Right? Who lives a Christian life? Is it, I do. No, it's his power in me that does it. Who, who, there's a paradox that we don't quite understand because our pea brains will explode if it, if it all gets in there. And here's another one. Am I sanctified or am I being sanctified? Like, am I, like, has God already set me apart and sanctified me or is he continuing to sanctify me? There's a, so anytime I believe that God lowers himself our brains can't wrap around it, but what we have to be humble enough to say is that, that God is sovereign in salvation and the man is responsible for what he does with the gospel. And that's what I believe. Why? Because that's what the Bible teaches. I'll never say it's black and white this, because it's not. They're both there. And here's the good news. That no matter what I believe about that, the Bible says that whosoever call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As in, I don't have to know who it is. I'm just responsible for preaching the gospel. And if anybody, anybody desires to know Jesus, he will save you. Listen to me. If you have this desire in you to know Jesus, listen to me. He's appointing you to salvation. That's how freeing that is. Listen to me. If you feel like, Justin, you know what? I, it, my blood is going to be on my head. And, and God's calling you right now. Listen to me. Believe in him. He will save you. That's the good news of the gospel. I don't have to understand it all. I just have to know that God's who does the work. I got to, I need to keep moving forward. And these promises encouraged a tired, broke down Paul to continue for 18 more months. What's the application here? We see Paul get discouraged and deflated, which means, listen, you ready? Newsflash, we do too. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, that's, I get that. Okay, just me and Lester Jr. here, all you perfect saints out there. We're the only sinners in here. How could God take the disheartened person and encourage them enough that they keep going. How do we combat it? Many people have heard of Spurgeon, but a lot of people don't know is that Spurgeon dealt with a lot of depression and fears and anxieties. 
We know him as the prince of preachers that stood on the stage and preached the most eloquent sermons. Well, all people don't know is that he, he suffered bad from depression and things like that. And he writes a lot about it. And this is what he said. I am subject, this is an excerpt from one of his books, I am subject of depressions of spirit, so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Spurgeon said, the road to sorrow has been well trotted. It is a regular sheep track to heaven, and all the flock of God have to go and pass along it. All of us are susceptible of finding ourselves there. How do we navigate it? Daily, we fill our minds with the promises of God. That's what happens here. God gives him promises. Child of God, I want to remind you that he has promised you his presence, his protection, and his purpose. And no matter where you find yourself, God has promised his presence to you. He has promised his protection over you. And he's promised his purpose in and for you. Spurgeon, like I said, here's some more quotes. Yes, he struggled with depression, but here's a couple other quotes that I love. He says this, and I think a lot of us could benefit this. Spurgeon said this, an ointment for every wound, a cordial for every faintness, a remedy for every disease. Blessed is he who is skilled in heavenly pharmacy and knows how to lay a hold of the healing futures of the promises of God. Man, what a beautiful picture. I thought about clay with the pharmacist. I thought about the, the medicines and how blessed is the man who, who, who's, who works well in a pharmacy that can to grab the promises of God off the shelf, grab the ointment of his presence, and grab the medicine. And we got another Hayden. Sorry, I saw you there. Pharmacist too. Uh, but the, we, we got a bunch of pharmacists in there. I can't start. Anyway, the picture is that there's medicine that has to be taken. Uh, as a child of God, we have to begin to develop, not to become a pharmacist, but whenever, whenever we're disheartened, whenever we're down and we're out. God has given us a, a, a pharmacy full of promises, if you will, that are ointments for our soul. Spurgeon also said this, to be cast down is often the best thing that could happen to us. That when we feel our humanity and our frailty, frailty, anyway, you know what I'm trying to say, that it's a gift of God to lean on, how did, to teach us to lean on the cane of God's grace. <laughs> what a beautiful imagery there. That when we're down are the crutches of God's grace, if you will. It's a gift to know our weakness. So how do we? I don't remember how I wrote it down, but press into God's word. Whenever life is overwhelming, when life is disheartening, we may not be like Paul that the Lord wakes us up and says, hey, man, I'm with you, bro. I don't know, is that irreverent for me to say that? Anyway, but press into God's word because in it we see the promises that God has given us. We see the pharmacy, if you will. Secondly, be around God's people. It's an imagery that we've used oftentimes. 
Psalm says that God is our refuge, a well-proven refuge. You think about a refuge as something that we can physically see, right, that we can run into. So how is God, who's invisible, our refuge? How do we run into that refuge, if you will? I think there's two tangible refuges that God has given us. First is the word. That whenever we're disheartened, we run into the refuge who God is by going to his word. And secondly, I believe his people is a physical refuge that God has blessed us with to run into. How do we take refuge in an invisible God? We take refuge in his word and his people. Thirdly, allow the Lord of promises to rejuvenate you or revive you. So I know this text spoke a bunch of different things going on in the text, and there's many things that I just kind of move forward on. But may we resolve to say, looking at the landscape of our world, we have decided to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. May we preach the gospel. May we look. Maybe these hard, big truths, if you will, that cause us to, may it lead us to dive into the word even more, to begin to understand God even more. But no matter where we arrive on what we believe about this, if it keeps us from preaching the gospel, then we've arrived at a wrong understanding. It necessitates the the fact of preaching the gospel. Thirdly, you're disheartened, go to the Lord. You're disheartened, connect to his people. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> thank you for... God, I thank you that you're God and I'm not. And God, that I don't have to understand you completely. And I can't. Because if I could, then I'd become God and I'd make a terrible one. But God, you're good, you're perfect, you're holy. You're other than. So God, I thank you for speaking to us. God, I thank you that we can look to your word and just walk through it. And see... your plan, your purposes. So God, no matter how you're speaking to hearts this morning, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to respond in a way which you called us to. God, if there's anyone in here this morning who has not trusted in Jesus, it may be a strong watchtower trumpet blowing, but God, I pray that today that they would see the reality of their condition and they would trust in Jesus. God, for the one in here who is disheartened, who's struggling, God, I pray that, you, that you'll speak, that you'll touch their hearts, touch their minds, or remind them of the promises in your word. And God, may we position ourselves under the waterfall of your promises. Until our souls are rejuvenated.
This morning we have the great opportunity to uh, take of the Lord's Supper together. And so uh, if you're a guest with us here this morning, you're more than welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. You don't have to be a member of Cross Point to take the Lord's Supper with us. We don't have a closed Lord's Supper, if you will. One thing we ask is that you have, you've been born again, you've been saved, that you've placed your faith in Christ. As a church, we are commanded by the Lord Jesus to, as often as we can, to take of the Lord's Supper. So this morning we had the opportunity to do that. If you don't know what the Lord's Supper is, it was something that Jesus instituted with his disciples on his last night with them before his execution, his death on the cross, that he gave them symbols, and one was bread and one was wine, and they represented a new covenant. They represented his body that was going to be broken and his blood that was going to be poured out. And so when we take of the Lord's Supper, we're remembering the cross. We're remembering, we're looking back and remembering the work that God has done in Christ. But he also tells them that he won't eat of it again until he eats it again one day in glory. And so not only do we look back, but we look ahead to the day in which we are forever, for all of eternity, with Christ. And there's a big time between then and the past. And so we look, as we're taking it, we look at it and say, God, even now I need you to sustain me. Even now I need you to carry me and hold me. So yeah, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to stand. Uh, Mark and Charlie, if y'all go ahead and come down. And Daniel, Anita, and Canton, and Anna. Yeah, we're going to go ahead. And so the way that we do this... Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask us to stand, and um, whenever you're ready, this band's going to sing over us. When you're ready, come down and just grab one of the, the Lord's Supper cups there, uh, and then go back to your seat. And remain standing, and then don't partake of it yet, and then whenever I think everybody's gotten it, we'll come up, we'll partake, partake of it together. Cool. I'm going to pray one more time. When I say amen, let's stand, and we'll begin. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for an opportunity this morning to take and to remember to look forward to. And so, God, I thank you for the gift uh, of the Lord's Supper and what it does in unifying us uh, to reminding us of what you've done and who you are for us. Father, be with us during this time. It's in Christ's name. Amen.